Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an inside look at a new cannabinoid research lab at Colorado State University. Everyone knows about THC and maybe CBD, but there's other minor cannabinoids that we want to do research on. And we speak with artist James Nehues, known around the world for his hand-painted ski resort maps. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado State University opened a new research center this week. The Panacea Life Sciences Cannabinoid Research Center will study the health benefits of cannabinoids on both humans and animals. KUNC reporter Stephanie Daniel attended the grand opening and is here to tell us more about the lab. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Erin. Before we talk about the research center, can we talk about cannabinoids in general. What are they and where do they come from? Sure. Cannabinoids are a broad class of chemicals found in the cannabis sativa plant. Most people know this plant. It's also called cannabis or hemp. Both contain the two common or main cannabinoids, THC and CBD. The difference is that marijuana contains higher levels of THC, which produces the high that's associated with using it, while hemp has 0.3% or less THC. CBD has proven health benefits for things like anxiety and pain relief, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved a drug with CBD to treat seizures. There are over 100 cannabinoid chemicals. The studies that will be conducted at the new CSU lab will focus on CBD and some of the other ones, but not THC. Okay. Now, the name of this new cannabinoid research center includes Panacea Life Sciences. I'm assuming that's where the funding for the center came from? Exactly. CSU and College of Natural Sciences alum Leslie Budorf gifted the university $1.5 million to create the center. She founded Panacea Panacea Life Sciences in 2017, which sells CBD products for people and pets. I was at the center's grand opening earlier this week and got a chance to ask her how this partnership came about. What we wanted to do was to advance research in the cannabinoid area. And everyone knows about THC and maybe CBD, but there's other minor cannabinoids that we want to do research on. And it contributes to, you know, a natural way for health to uh, help people and and pets. And then I know you said you're an alum of CSU, but why else did you want to partner with CSU? Well, CSU is a great university. It's a land-grant university. So if you think of all the departments that CSU has to contribute to cannabinoid research, we've got chemistry, biology, agriculture, the vet med, human med. So it just has all the different departments to bring it all together. 
The research center is run through the College of Natural Sciences and housed in the chemistry building. But as Butterf just said, many departments will be able to utilize the equipment. I can only imagine how specialized this equipment must be. Tell us more about it and how it will be used. Yeah, the lab has state-of-the-art chemical separation and analysis instrumentation. These instruments allow a researcher to extract the specific cannabinoid they want to study. Melissa Reynolds is the center director, and in one room, she showed me a medium-sized rectangular box, and on top are three bottles of liquid mixtures that include crude hemp. The liquid is run through instrumentation, which separates and extracts the cannabinoids. And that's a lot of the development that we end up, or we're working on doing here, um, to be able to say, this is the one we have, this is how much we have of it, um, so that as then we put it in the formulation that gets used for whatever the, the application is, we know it's pure, um, and we can identify how much is aiding to that therapeutic effect. Even though the center just opened, research has already started. There are 15 projects going on right now. One studies formulations, like what's the best way to give a cannabinoid to someone. Is it through a drinkable oil or a gummy, maybe an IV? The Department of Psychology is also working on a project that's looking at cannabinoids, alcohol addiction, and treatment. Well, there's no doubt the hemp and CBD industries are booming. I read the global CBD market is expected to hit. $13.4 billion with a B by the year 2028. And as you said, Stephanie, CSU Center will not only study the medicinal benefits of CBD, but other cannabinoids as well. What kind of impact does the university think that this research will have on the industry? The people I spoke to at CSU are very excited about this lab, and they want to be leaders in cannabinoid research. As I mentioned, there are over 100 cannabinoids, and most of them have not been studied. And if you think about the medicinal benefits of CBD, imagine what the other chemicals may be able to do. So this is really an untapped area of analytical and materials chemistry. In an article CSU recently published about the center, Reynolds said they're trying to develop a variety of studies to answer key questions about key cannabinoids and really look at their potency and efficacy for various uses. Here's another key thing. With $1.5 million, the center was able to buy the equipment needed to complete research now and in the future. I mentioned that rectangular instrument that separates cannabinoids and liquid crude hemp. You only test about 100 microliters, but researchers can transfer what they learned to a much bigger instrument that can run up to 55 gallons of liquid an hour. Reynolds said this ability to scale up is a big advantage. We can go from research, benchtop, small scale, to medium industrial scale. But that is really unique for universities. Most of the time researchers, because we focus so much on the fundamental science, we can do the benchtop experiments, but then how do you translate from academics out of the private sector? Well, one is that middle part, which is how do you scale up processes? And we are very equipped now due to the gift that Leslie provided to be able to do the scale up that then makes the technology more available for industry in Colorado. Wow, that's interesting. Now, who gets to do this research in the lab? Will students have access? Yes, both undergrad and graduate students can conduct studies here. Reynolds told me she'll help students fit the project with their interests. She recently spoke to an undergrad who's interested in how CBD can affect anxiety. Uh, Many undergraduates in our sciences want to have the experiences. It creates uh, 
more competition for them when they go into the workforce to kind of have that competitive edge. And I'm a real big fan of helping students get real experiences. While I was at the lab, I talked to graduate student Jamie Cacharo. She is a separations chemist and is working on different separations involving low abundance or minor cannabinoids. She's in her fourth year and was already working on her Ph.D. project before the center opened. She also interned at Panacea Life Sciences two years ago. I asked Cacharo what she thought about the research center. I think it's amazing. Um, We were able to analyze cannabinoids at uh, lower concentrations and in higher with higher accuracy uh, than what would be the industry standard currently. So it's a very exciting time to be getting into this field. Here's an example of how she partners with others. There is a collaboration looking at the CBD uptake in blood plasma in humans and horses. The animal side researchers will conduct their clinical study, collect blood samples, and then spin down the blood. What's left is the different molecules. They would then bring it over to me, and I would be able to tell them exactly how much CBD is in the uh, in the plasma, how much um, of those metabolites are present, and then we can collaborate from that that place in order to build meaning um, and and move forward in that sense. When she graduates, Kachara hopes to work in research. So undergraduate and graduate students can work on specific cannabinoid-related projects in the lab. But does CSU plan to create a specific class about this research? That's a good question. I had the same thought and asked Center Director Melissa Reynolds about this. She said they are working on different opportunities for students to get minors or certificates in the various parts of the hemp value chain. The center is also collaborating with CSU Pueblo, which offers a cannabis biology and chemistry degree program. And so I think there's going to be a lot more crosstalk between the two universities to provide opportunities for students to either get certificates or minors in the various areas that are, again, customized to what their interests are, whether that be more on the synthetic side, the analytical side, the agricultural side, the business side, uh, the manufacturing side. I think all of those will end up becoming possibilities, and we're all working towards that goal right now. Wow, there's so many possibilities with this work. Really looking forward to hearing more about the health benefits of cannabinoids as CSU ramps up their research. Stephanie, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome. Thanks, Erin. Throughout the month of October, there are plenty of spooky experiences to be had across northern Colorado, from corn mazes to tours of haunted houses. But how about a few old-fashioned ghost stories told with music and dance next to a crackling campfire, all of them based on tales of hauntings, murder, and the supernatural drawn from Colorado lore? Lunacies is a multimedia collaborative based in Fort Collins that incorporates music, dance, theater, visual art, and fashion into unique performance experiences. And to celebrate Halloween, they've created Grim Mountain Legends to immerse guests in our state's haunted history. Lunacy's theatrical director Stephen Dewey says they wanted to pay homage to Colorado's beauty, but also its darker side. We did our homework and we found um six Colorado legends. That's part of the building of when we all get together. You know, we all get together and we throw out ideas and then we we finally hone in on six, you know, a couple of legends, right? And we're not doing The Shining and we're not doing ones that everybody knows, you know? We, we, we really want, it's almost like an educational thing too. That's really fun with a lot of humor, right? And hopefully a lot of scare to it for the, for the time of the season. The stories include tales of shape-shifting witches, headless ghosts, and a flesh-eating blue mist that wander the Colorado landscape. 
Not to worry if you haven't heard them before, says Lunacy's artistic director, Leah Casper. I like to look for like the little hidden gems that like the stories that are overlooked. That's what we've really searched for when building the show from the ground up. The stories are told through original music, dance, costuming, and shadow performances on sets built around a large campfire. Guests feel like they're in the middle of the performance. They even enjoy food and libations specially chosen to fit the theme. Hot cider and turkey legs have to do with, we have a cannibal story, and we really want people sitting around the fire eating their turkey legs while they're listening to the cannibal story. The music you're hearing now, The Ballad of Alfred Packer, was composed by Loveland-based artist Kiralyn Sands, specifically to help tell the story of the Colorado cannibal, one of the six legends that is at least somewhat rooted in history. Dewey says it's a different, uniquely immersive way to experience Colorado lore. The audience gets to explore and have a lot of unexpected things happen. And they're also getting like a comprehensive view of a lot of different media, a lot of different um, visuals all combined, you know, to like create an experience that they can actually feel, feel like they're a part of, not separate from. Grim Mountain Legends is performing this Friday and Saturday. You'll find more information at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Back in 2019, I spoke with legendary ski map artist James Nehues at his studio in Parker, Colorado. This month, Nehues announced his retirement from hand-painting ski maps. Throughout his career, spanning over 30 years, he has painted more than 200 ski resort maps in multiple countries. But Nehus is passing the torch of his craft forward. Rad Smith, a Bozeman, Montana-based map illustrator and cartographer, has been studying under Nehus for six years. And now, as Nehus moves on to a new project, painting American landscapes, Smith is continuing the work. Nehus and Smith both join us now from their respective studios in Parker and Bozeman to talk about retirement, the art of ski map painting, and where it's headed now. James, Rad, thank you so much for being here. Very good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. James, I'd like to start by just talking about your retirement. After decades of working on maps of ski trails. It's a pretty big deal to stop doing this. How did you come to the decision to retire? Age had a lot to do with it, I guess. I'm 75, and I've always uh, harbored a uh, a real uh, passion to do traditional landscapes. I've been taking photographs all the time that I've been on assignment and uh, in some terrific country and terrain. I just wanted to share some of those and and I realized I can't paint them all so I'm I've decided to go ahead and sketch them so they're they're uh, going to be issued as sketches. I have a list of about 50 and the list grows. I'm at 20. I'm working on Crater Lake at the present time. Well, I was going to ask because sometimes when we say American landscapes people think of uh you know Iowa farmland or something like that. Uh what what are you going to focus on? Well, I'm, I'm going to focus on uh, the very dynamic uh, terrain that we have and the, and the diversity of the terrain that we have in America. You've got the Grand Canyon, you've got uh, Yosemite, you've got uh, Acadia, you know, it's just in uh, Niagara Falls, I could go on and on. So I, I would just like to 
illustrate these in a way that maybe they haven't been seen before. A little bit of uh, aerial views and some uh, drone uh, views, and then also some traditional uh, standing on the ground views. We spoke in 2019 about your art and career. Back then, you said when you started painting ski trails 30-some years ago, it was really just a job to you. When you started, you didn't even ski. And I'm wondering, what do you think the younger James would think about how far your career has come? Oh, boy. I I, uh, had no idea, you know, that it ever uh, lasts for 30 years, 35 years. Especially in the beginning, and it didn't take too long for me to get really passionate about ski maps. And very soon, I had a career. And the people in the industry are just so incredible, and and it's such an exciting job. It, it had all the all the elements that I really love to do: a little bit of flying, uh, and then put it, putting it together and and painting it. It's been a really gratifying career. I still remember what you said to me when I asked about how you envision people using the ski resort maps, you know, sitting, having a beer maybe at the end of a long day of runs and and just pouring over the map and remembering. Well, I I hope that my maps get a lot of beer spilled on them and and some food made. But, uh, um, you know, that's what is so gratifying is the fact that uh, people can look at these, review the day, dream about their next trip. And then use them to get to get down the hill. Um, it's just incredible that uh, I was given this opportunity. Now, also, James, when we spoke with you back in 2019, I had asked about using computers to create these maps and why couldn't that be done? Could you remind us now why a computer-drawn ski map just wouldn't quite be the same? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, there's so much that the human mind conceives and uh, interprets. And, um, you know, we, we may have a vision like a photographic vision, but our, when we see something, our brains magnify on certain things and interpret certain things in certain ways. And, and I think that's uh, uh, the most important element of developing a good ski map is the human interpretation. And then, of course, the, the hand painting, because the hand painting you know, in one stroke of a brush, I can have uh, a, a multiple different values and, and colors in that stroke. Uh, so it's just more natural. It just comes off the page better. And um, and, and it's something that people believe in. And, and, it, and it reflects the, the nature and not, not an office with a computer-generated map. Brad Smith, I want to bring you into the conversation here. I understand you actually do have a background in the kind of digital mapping that James is talking about. What kind of work were you doing um, before you connected with James? Yeah, so I, uh, I I worked for an environmental consulting firm for a number of years and was providing all kinds of, of digital supportive maps uh, on a variety of projects. Um, and those maps were Typically, uh, well, they were all computer generated um, for a number of reasons, but that's kind of how I got my start in, in, in the mapping world. I've um, always been attracted to maps, but, but that's how I got, got to making maps. And then how did you first connect with James? Uh, at the time, I was doing less kind of flat technical maps, and I was, I was illustrating more maps, more for collegiate campuses and things like that, but um, I was aware of 
James's work. And, and I, after working on some digital ski related maps, I, I really wanted to, to reach out to, to the person I had gotten to know um, just through looking at his painted maps. Um, and I had a background in painting and, and I wanted to see if I could combine the two interests uh, of painting and mapping. I may add right here that, uh, you know, one day I was uh, going through reviewing some maps and, and I come up to Moonlight, which is up in Montana, and I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, gosh, that looks like my map, but I don't know. No, it's not quite right. But it was one of Rad's digital maps. And, you know, I don't like digital maps, but of the digital maps that were out there, Rad was doing the very best. and uh, he had a very good representation of that mountain. Um, that was my first digital trail map uh, of a ski area. And I spent so much time looking at James's map of Moonlight. I, I literally, in my mind, dissected his map to, to produce my digital map. And, and that was the impetus for me to, to contact uh, James because I still wasn't, I was proud of that map. It's still one of my favorite digital maps, but but it still was not a painted map. It was not what I was looking to, to achieve. Rad, did you have any idea that James was looking for someone to pass the torch to? I did see an interview after he, uh, Big Sky acquired Moonlight, and I think James was hired to paint all of, all of that mountain, which was, is now huge. And he uh, was featured in a, a local magazine, and he had mentioned that he was thinking about retirement, but, you know, hadn't, hadn't really put anything out there as far as a date or a timeline, but, but did mention that he didn't really have anyone to pass the torch to at the time. So that also was, was a big springboard for me to contact him. And yeah, James, I mean, what was it about Rad that made you feel you could trust him with carrying on this work? Well, I just saw the quality of his work. And, um, you know, he had, uh, uh, as far as hand painting, whenever he first started out, he had a little little to learn, but uh, he's been learning very well and, and uh, has a very nice style. And I'm, I'm excited to see a new style uh, come in. I, I've uh, kind of dominated in the last uh, 30 years and uh, certainly is fresh that he his style is coming in. And it must be exciting to know that, you know, he will have his own style that'll be distinctive from yours. Well, that's true. And then that's what Bill Brown had always told me, too. He says, don't try to copy me. Develop your own style and really just perfect it and master it. James, can you remind us who Bill Brown is and how did he inspire you? Well, Bill Brown uh, painted trail maps in the decade prior to whenever I uh, started. So he was in the uh, 80s. And then before him was Hal Sheldon. I've been in both of their studios and uh, they were a great ins inspiration for me. Rad, this question is for you uh, because I think it's pretty rare to shift from more digital work to something analog like hand painting ski maps. It seems to me that shift would usually be reversed. What in is inspiring you to make this transition? Ah, uh, boy, part of it's personal. I get a little tired of looking at the computer and I knew that was coming and I've always loved painting and I, I really wanted to, to try to get back involved with, with as you say, the analog work. Uh, the other part is, is I've always appreciated the work James has done, both for the ski industry and, and, and some of the other projects he's worked on. I, 
uh, as a map maker and an artist, I've always been attracted to his work. And I think he has set such a great precedent in the ski industry that uh, it would be a shame for someone not to at least attempt to, to continue to hand paint. I think there's a, a great tradition there that, that he, and as he mentioned, Bill Brown and Hal Shelton set. Um, and if there's any way I can carry that on to any degree, that's a win for me. What are you learning as you transition from creating a, a ski map with a computer to painting one by hand? You know, there's there's such a, a process involved uh, that I, I really appreciate. And it's a lot more physical than I am used to <clears throat> sitting in, even though you're sitting and in, in you're very confi- confined to your space. It's, it's just a different process. You're, you're always looking at the whole painting or the whole image that you're working on. You're never zoomed in on a certain part. Every, every aspect of it has been, has been a, a learning process. Are there any specific maps from James that have inspired your work? Hmm. Well, I love the Big Sky map. It, it, uh, the, the whole series of maps he's done for Big Sky are beautiful. It's such an expansive, iconic mountain. I, I can appreciate the level of effort that was put into that you know a non-ski map though that i i still have and i i fell in love with from the day i got it was his summer painting of indian peaks wilderness that he did i imagine that was probably 20 plus years ago that he did that maybe 30 years ago quite tell you but that was an early one yes it was i i i've had it for well yeah i, I know i've had it for over 20 years so <laughs> Well, James, I'll give you the last word before we wrap up. What advice would you give to Rad uh, and other potential ski map painters out there? I think my book, the success of my book, uh, The Man Be- Behind the Maps, and uh, proves that it kind of galvanizes the um, love that the skiers have and and the acceptance of hand-painted maps and, and their influence and their their, their effectiveness. And I, I think it's uh, important. I'm really glad that uh, Rad has come on to uh, do the hand-painted maps into the future after me. And I, I just encourage uh, any artist that has a great passion to pursue their passion and, and uh, really work hard to meet their goals. James Nehus is a Colorado-based landscape artist and cartographer. Rad Smith is a map illustrator and cartographer who lives in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you both so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on a special episode of Colorado Edition, we explore the history and present-day implications of sundown towns in the Mountain West. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.